Hello and welcome to Too Rash, Too Unadvised, the occasionally thoughtful read-through of Too Like the Lightning, give or take the sequels. My name is Liam Nolan. And I'm Wero Kiryuchi. And today, I'm with the Complex. Oh. What chapters are we talking about today? 14 and 15? And today we are discussing chapters 14 and 15. If you want to ask us any questions or be on the show, please feel free to reach out to us at 2rash2unadvised at gmail.com. Two is in the number two, and I may check that email. No spoilers, please. Also, support us, and more importantly, our hiring of an editor on Patreon. If you can't find us on Patreon by Googling, don't worry about it. With that out of the way, many kind thanks to our Lord and Savior, Wes... And to the tyrant that I swear to kill. Let's get on with the show. I am not capable of explaining the specific differences here, but if you read various uh, authors who wrote in Latin, uh, a lot of the quote-unquote best orators, like Cicero, um, write in a very indirect style. And... Back in the Middle Ages, if you were learning Latin, you would read Cicero in part because, as like your advanced Latin uh, finisher, because the way that he writes is com- is extremely complex um, in terms of what is being referenced in the various clauses at use, and that in order to have mastered the form, you needed something in the realm of a classical original author. As opposed to, you know, we're two kids in high school, we are muddling through the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog. Yeah. Um, so this is a very strong command of Latin. Yeah, that, that's... Okay. I, I'd agree. If I were asked to translate Latin, I would not use this, these constructions. Simply because it's not, I don't think, like this. I think in English. Okay, so the Latin we get from... Jed is in fact very complex Latin that suggests he has a deep intuitive understanding of how the language works. Okay. Yes. Good to know. Good to know. Was there anything left to discuss in 14? I think we're through. Yeah. Right? Uh, it went through the information went through the Herman Pudras talking about some of history. Uh, we didn't mention Canterby. Canterby. Yeah, Canterby and the minor thing. So off topic. Right, Canterbeat. Uh, okay, so it sounds like Mycroft uh, has a genre of music named after him. And it sounds like that genre is like black metal. It's mentioned that on assume. the same line as gore. Gore photos. Yeah. Gore photographs. As, as a thing that an edgy, disturbed college kid would be into. Now, admittedly, I don't know what the edgy teens are into these days. Um... Fortnite? But <laughs> that feels a little bubbly in this context. So you think it's a musical genre? Probably. It has the word beat in it. I don't know. So like, you know, dince, 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 dince. Yeah, I'm, it, it's a guess, Something. but I feel like it's an okay guess. I can't think what else it might be. Oh, I guess it might be a drug. Music makes more sense, though. What with beat? a drug named after Minecraft, can I? Apparently everything's named after Mycroft Canner. Mycroft Canner is one of the most important people in the world. He's best friends with the head of every single uh, hive. 
and synonymous with the word medieval in certain contexts, mostly beating people up. Mm. Uh, that's that's uh, something's up with our narrator. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently, he's real good at violence. And, okay. Uh, my so. Guys. Chapter uh, fifteen. There's this line. Oh, okay. Sure. <laughs> we Thank are. God. An hour and 40 minutes in, I need to push us forward. Um, Reasonable. Chapter 15. So it opens with Mycroft talking about how murder in the future doesn't happen all that often. And that uh, the people who do do murders are always caught or kill themselves. Or turn themselves in. We get some ratios. Here's the thing. I think Mycroft is full of it. Um... We hear about murders happening all the time. And people don't appear to be caught or murdered over them. Plus? Like Dominic. Oh. We find out two lines later, Dominic has killed several people. In Dominic duels. is not dead or in jail. Uh, duels are different from murder. I think it's, not, it's notable, it's important to point out that Dominic is a black law. And they don't have a government. And so if you presumably kill the Dominic, and your government didn't care then no one would care about Dominic being dead. Great. And also, I'm, I'm okay with so people far, not caring, but that still feels like... A, and there's a dozen events in this story that I think are unsolved murders. Why is he so confident that there are no unsolved murders? Well, he doesn't say that there are no unsolved murders. He's saying that there's no murder that stays unsolved. I could say that now. That's fair. I, 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 but no, there are murders that are that are, still, that are uh, unsolved. Both will stay unsolved. No, they just haven't been yet. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there's two important things to keep track of. One is that uh, when he talks about Dominic, he's talking about duels, um, and that in the context of a historical cosplayer, which is kind of what Dominic is at this point. <laughs> Killing someone in the 18th or the 19th century in a duel is not the same as murdering them. It's eventually starts to be classified as murder under various legal codes to get people to stop dueling. It's bad. Um, but it's considered a matter of honor. It's considered socially acceptable. Uh, I don't know if you've listened to the musical Hamilton, but you know, you get a doctor it's very formalized you get a doctor on site to treat one of the participants i have uh, some strong feelings about the musical hamilton that i that are... uh will not get into on at least this episode of this show the point being it was something that was effectively socially sanctioned even at times when it was illegal um and for a guy who lives outside the bounds of and the protection of the law at least if he's dealing with other people who have also made the same agreement, dueling is fine and different from murder. Although, All right. uh, if you're completely living outside the bounds and protection of the law and there's somebody else who is also living completely outside the bounds and protection of the law, presumably you could actually just murder them. Yeah, I don't see why you couldn't. To... Yeah. I, I feel like Mycroft is overly confident in the the governance regarding murders but it's also not a big thing for this chapter and we're we're so deep into this i'm gonna i'm gonna push forward a little bit uh that's reasonable we get some more confirmation that bridger is 13 and not that wasn't a typo 
they aren't actually six. Um, uh, that, that's actually what I talk, wanted, wanted to talk about, because Bridger is 13, but hasn't had a growth spell yet, um, which is, I think, atypical. Uh, what grade is yeah. what grade are you in when you're 13? Uh, eighth. That's uh, seventh eighth. Oh yeah, that yeah, they should be a little taller by then. Yeah, uh, and but like it's but not out of the question. Not for by it to that much. It's not um, like it's not like you know, like I don't know, impossible for this to not happen. But it is atypical, and does provide evidence. Well, for it suggested. It suggested that Bridger had kind of started with the growth spurt, so Bridger could have just been a kind of late bloomer, <laughs> and it wouldn't be that weird. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. Uh, this is only limited evidence for my but, for my theory that uh, that people stay children for much yeah. longer. Yeah, oh, it is limited. That's interesting. I'll give you that. Um, someone who's about there to have also... the growth spurt should be more advanced mentally than a six-year-old. I'm just saying. <laughs> so I think that there is a degree to which Bridger is more advanced mentally than a six-year-old in certain respects and not in others, and it's kind of interesting to see where. Like, he's capable of reading and talking about the Odyssey and Les Miserables, at least with some help from a plastic soldier, apparently. Um, But his understanding of social reality and how to engage with other people is still very... I wouldn't say infantile, but I would say juvenile. Okay. Even though the Odyssey and Les Mis are things that we associate with people taking an interest in when they're older, if you took a kid who was in, like, first grade, and you, at home, just were really into the Odyssey, and you told them the story of the Odyssey, that kid's going to kind at least get the, the main ideas behind the yep. Odyssey. Like, it's they not will. actually that complicated a story. I agree with the Odyssey. I don't know if that's so true if, about Les well, he's still in the middle of reading that one. Um, but if you so if you took a kid and that's just one of the three books that they liked, I'm not that impressed that Bridger is able to talk about Odysseus just because it's something we associate with people reading in high school. Little kids talk about the Bible. If you sat down and tried to yep. read the Bible, ugh, it's gross. Depends on the book. Like, it, it's not easy reading by any means. Yeah. So, along, right. when Bridger comes in and tackles Mycroft, because he doesn't quite get that he's not six himself, mm. uh, he starts talking about how Amor is reading him Les Miserables. And there's a couple of interesting things here before I go off completely on my Les Miserables topic, which I think is probably now the right time. Um, the plastic soldiers are being, di- are being differentiated in little subtle ways. Um, the one who's talking about history being written by the bystanders, who's talking about the risks and dangers of a situation, that's the major, you know, the the head of these toy soldiers, who I I think I certainly understood him as he's supposed to be the, the toy soldier who talks and is representative of the rest of them. But Amor is reading stories to a young child and is telling them about the parts that are going to be really sad so they know about them ahead of time. That's a very subtle piece of characterization to differentiate them, but uh, it, it is signifying that these soldiers who have been brought to life are in fact not just plastic, but they are different from one another in 
at least little bits of degrees. Maybe we aren't going to see that elaborated on much, but they are different people. And I think that's really cool, even if it's very small. I think it had been sort of suggested by the absence of an explanation. If they were all the same soldier, I think we would have heard about it. So I presumed that they were meaningfully different. Yeah, but you've you've definitely read books where like every member of this group is in fact just like every other member of this group and they might be named different and they might be labeled different and one of them might die and one of them might live, but there's not a practical difference between them. Oh yeah, for um, sure. Yeah, but and that's I'm not a problem. That will... If anyone ever says that that is a problem this author suffers from, they haven't read the book. <laughs> if anything, this book goes too far in the other direction. I can't keep track <laughs> of who anyone is because they're all so highly differentiated and with so many different names. Ah, uh, anyway, um, so Bridger has been reading Les Miserables with uh, Amer, Lieutenant Amer. Yes. Um, oh, act, wait, before and, we get into that, I think before we hit that point, we have a brief conversation between Mycroft and the Major about how they need yes. to get ready to go in case something happens. Yes. But they don't Dominic know yet if that's is, on the way. Dominic has at least the strong possibility that he's on the scent. Um, this should make us all worried. Uh, Mycroft tells us, no, really, my, uh, Dominic is for real. And we need to get ready to go at a moment's notice. Yeah. Um, and that's our, that's our big plot beat for the chapter. All right. Now go yell at us about the French. All right. I uh, heard that you were doing a podcast in which you were going to be discussing uh, some philosophical questions that are invoked by two like the lightning, give or take the sequels and realized that there was at some point going to be a, discussion of Les Miserables that was probably going to be glossed over on account of the book is very long and not a lot of people have read it because it is so long and it is so particular in the way it's put together. Um, but I think it's actually a really important book for understanding To Like the Lightning and a lot of its themes. The first thing I want to talk about is about Batman. There was an interview uh, a few years ago with Christopher Nolan, who directed uh, the, the Dark Knight and all of those movies, mm -hmm. um, in which he was talking about the scene in which Batman's parents get killed. Um, in the comics, uh, Bruce Wayne and his parents go to a movie theater, uh, watch a movie, and then they walk out, walk down a dark alley, and, get, and the parents get shot. Um... In Batman Begins, it's been changed. I think it's changed so that they walk out of a ballet or an opera, some some kind I think of live it's an opera. performance, um, and walk down the dark alley and get shot. And he was talking about why he made that change. Um, and he explained that if you're reading a comic book and somebody walks out of a movie theater, that's different from if you're watching a movie and somebody walks out of a movie theater. That oh. the relationship yeah. between uh, a, a work of fiction that appears in the text that is in some way of the same form as the text itself carries with it this kind of self-reflective or connective idea between them. Like uh, another good example, if you watch The Simpsons, 
uh, itchy and scratchy. Like, the way that uh, characters interact with itchy and scratchy, uh, either as, like, viewers or as people involved in the production of the show, uh, that is in some ways reflecting on The Simpsons as a TV program, or the nature of the kinds of TV programs that The Simpsons is like. Um, So if you see a character in a book, reading a book, specifically a work of fiction, reading another work of fiction, uh, you might think that there's some kind of similar connection, something that you should reflect on in that, especially if it's, you know, sometimes there will be a book in somebody's hand and it will be a piece of flavor and it's kind of easily dismissed. And sometimes it will be elaborated on a little bit more. And we get a little bit of discussion of Les Miserables, and therefore I think it deserves a little bit of extra explanation. Um, so, Les Miserables is the story, asterisk, of Jean Valjean, a prisoner who is convicted of a minor crime uh, and sentenced to years of slavery as a result. Um, at a certain point, he gets out of prison, uh, breaks his parole, but uh, in the same act of breaking his parole, is also kind of left as a redeemed person and tries to live a better life from that point on. Uh, at some point, he takes on an adoptive child uh, that he raises and is very concerned about the moral instruction of. Uh, and has to hide this child away in secret because of the various risks and problems associated with that, um, all while being pursued by the authorities. Eventually, the story comes to encompass other plot points, such as the the police officer who's chasing him, a young man who falls in love, who like later in the story falls in love with the adult version of the kid. Um, at some point, Paris breaks out in a revolt because it's Paris, and the people are always revolting, and there are a few interesting things about Les Miserables as a work that have a lot of relevance for Terra Ignota in general. Um, right. So the first is are the you way the saying book... that you're drawing a connection between yes. the character who uh, is a criminal raising a child and someone in this work? <laughs> I can't. I uh, I can't imagine why a criminal slave raising a child in secret hidden away from the prying eyes of the world and very concerned about the proper moral instruction of that child would possibly be similar to anything like, I don't know, the relationship between Mycroft and Bridger. I, and uh, that you should see. <laughs> I have known the broad strokes of Les Miserables for a while. I, I couldn't get through the actual book. But when you lay it all out like that, there, there are some parallels. <laughs> You're right. It's, it's hard to ignore. Um... It's not just that. Uh, for example, do you remember why you couldn't get through Les Miserables? Uh, the writing? That That is part of it. I, I like the writing style. I Possibly we read different translations, but the way it's written, Victor Hugo sure does, who's the author of Les Miserables, sure mm-hmm. does like talking about stuff. Stuff that's not necessarily the events that are happening that might be relevant to what's what's going on at this exact moment in time. In addition to all of the plot things that happen, we will also get, for example, uh, the entire history of the Parisian sewer system. What? We will get a hundred pages about the batter, Battle of Waterloo. To be fair, it's a pretty good history. It, it, is, pretty, it is actually pretty great. Um, we will have an entire chapter devoted to the mental picture of what it is like to be a man thrown overboard and slowly drown. 
Um, by the way, no one is thrown off of a ship and drowns in this story. Um, they just got, like, carried away with a metaphor? Yes. Uh, there is a lot of elaborate metaphor and a lot of explanations of pieces of history and pieces of culture that are relevant to, in at least the author's words, uh, or at least the author's mind, either the main themes of these of the book or the actions that the characters are taking. Well, when you think of how Mycroft writes, where every third page he decides to tell us either about Voltaire or Aristotle or Thersites or, or the global transit system, which obviously anyone reading this book obviously knows that there's a bunch of cars that fly around the world and put people in places. The way that Mycroft is taking time out to describe bits of history, either real history or this imagined history in the future, or make connections to bits of philosophy, or run through a little thought experiment, they're all very similar to the way that digressions are done in Les Miserables. They're a lot longer in Les Miserables because uh, I think this book was written by someone with an understanding of what a 21st century reader is willing to put up with uh, more than what Victor Hugo was aware of. But structure-wise, that's that's a pretty stark similarity. And I think in... I, I certainly enjoy both books. I really like Mycroft's narration. I really liked those dig- I really like those digressions and like chapters where they appear. Uh, I believe this sets me apart from at least some of this podcast. <laughs> no, don't get me but... wrong. I don't like Mycroft, but I do find this book fun to read. Okay. I just wish he was a, a fundamentally better person. You, uh, you talk a little bit later in the chapter about saving people in books. Now you want to morally improve people in books? <laughs> yeah, uh, one of those makes me better off. <laughs> um, speaking of saving people in books, actually, now that we've discussed a little bit of Les Mis, there's a suggestion that one of the things Mycroft is worried about is that Bridger will reach in and pluck out the characters to sort of save them from all of the terrible tragedy that's about to happen. Yes. Do you think that that, even given Bridger's powers, is a thing that makes sense? I it's it's a little dubious to me. There's a, there's a question of if I were to make a Jean Valjean here in the room with me, I can buy on some level that that's the same Jean Valjean that that, that, that is in the book, at least with the way that Bridger's powers work. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily buy that. There's then not still a Jean Valjean suffering through uh, imprisonment and uh, fear and revolution and self-loathing and whatnot. I, I don't buy that you can make the book on that way and therefore save someone. You can just create a person who is saved. Well, a book only generally only encounters a certain amount of time. So I don't know. What we could do is have the genre not, not pick a John Valjean from the middle of the book, but rather from the end of the book. And then there's no inconsistency. Sure there was a there's a John Valjean who suffers, but the John Valjean who suffers can be the same as John Valjean who is now saved. The same way that someone who was suffering can now be saved. 
I do you think consistency is the key thing there? I think if it was inconsistent, how is, it would be ruled out. How is me pulling from the end of the book any more morally significant than me pulling from the middle of the book? I think. In fact, isn't it worse? Because I haven't saved him from anything. Well, no. It's. I think it's. Um, the consistency makes it meaningfully possible for the person in the book and the person at the person at the end of the book and the person I have in front of me to be the same people. Well, I I know they're the same people due to sort of editorial fiat, right? <laughs> the way my magic works is that I can make them be the same people. They're the same people. So why is the consistency important? I think maybe because. I'm thinking of same people differently. Like, Mara was saying that 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 she doesn't know if Jean Valjean would still be suffering. The Jean Valjean who's in yeah, the book, specifically. Would be, still be suffering. And if saving implies you can stop that suffering, I think that's a reasonable thing. I'm actually... I'm unconvinced that there's a meaningful sense in which we can say that the Jean Valjean from the book is suffering. I agree. Um... But also, unrelated to whether or not I think that's a concept that makes sense, I don't see an obvious distinction between pulling them from the middle and pulling them from the end. I think what I, the way I phrase my notes is that the story once told is told. There's no way to stop it. So if you're going to pluck the character from the pages, surely you would need to do that before the suffering. Because that's the only way in which they have at least an iteration of themselves which doesn't suffer. Unless you think that actually the uh, Jean Valjean had a pretty cool time. Like maybe you have a weird read of that and you think he had fun during <laughs> that, the events that of that a, book. <laughs> there is a completely defensible read in which you should not pull Jean Valjean because it is right that Jean Valjean go through what Jean Valjean went through, at least after a certain point of the book. I think... My, I think it has to do with a, a different notion of personhood. I, I, I think it's because I have a very idiosyncratic version of, notion of personhood. Uh, in that, if I were to pluck Jean Valjean from the middle of the book, uh, then I think that there are three people. That's true. I think that there are... I think that the Jean Valjean in the, from the book before you pluck him out the Jean Valjean in front of you are the same people. I think the Jean Valjean in the book are after that point, and the Jean Valjean before that point are the same people. And I think the Jean Valjean in the book after the point, and the Jean Valjean in front of you are different people. I don't think the relationship of Why are you okay? Sameness. Why are you okay calling the Jean Valjean from the start and the end of the book the same person? Because they have a certain relationship. Progression? Like this relationship that makes me... that relates to me and the me in an hour. That there is here at Secrets of Defense, or that um, I've seen. Okay, but surely you in an hour and you in a different potential hour are still the same person. I would call myself, let's, for the sake of ease of discussion, let's say I can do multiverses, right? So, me in the world where I choose to refill my coffee as soon as we stop editing or not editing, recording, and me in the world where we go on an extra 20 minutes. I now, from the start of my figurative book, think of those two possible people as being just as much me as one another. So the me that's been plucked out of my figurative book and the me that went to have coffee, 
I think I need to think are still also the same people. I don't think glitches of openness is transitive. Hmm. So, uh, yes, I was going to add another second philosophical question to this. Oh, great. Discussion Go for of it. Taking... All right. So, uh, I listened to the podcast episode in which, uh, you guys were talking about, uh, is there a moral responsibility to bring back pointer, you know, mm-hmm. he, or, or someone else who has died and whether or not there, the existence of an afterlife affects that, etc. Um, if you think that there exists a moral responsibility to put, to pull a dead person back into life, uh, at least under certain circumstances, is there a moral responsibility to put, to make an unreal person real? Like make a, the fictional Jean Valjean real. All right. Now we're recording from different places, but I want to be clear. You deserve a huge high five for that. Excellent work. Big fan. Thank you. I think for the same reason that in that episode, I think in the edits that I that it came out, I, I think that I don't have responsibility to make unborn, un, not real people, like uh, to make unborn children. You born. don't have a responsibility. Yeah, you don't have a responsibility to an unfertilized egg. Yes. Yeah, so I think that I don't have a responsibility to unfertilized egg, to make it fertilized and to make a new person. Uh, I assume I don't have a responsibility to potential people in the conventional sense uh, to make them real, um, but I might have a responsibility to make their lives good. If you did bring them into yeah. reality. So I think the same, my same reasoning applies here, that I, I don't have a responsibility to make unreal people real. But I do have a responsibility to make their lives good if I'm going to make it. And I think you ended on Bridger doesn't have a obligation, strictly speaking, to bring Pointer back. But that since Bridger cares, he has the right to. I think I said obligation. Because Bridger cares, although he has obligation to. But to Bridger, not to Pointer. You think that since Bridger cares, Bridger has an obligation to himself to do it? Yeah. That's a that's a weird phrasing. I I probably wouldn't have come up with that. Um, uh, so would you say the same thing for Bridger really likes Jean Valjean and wants Jean Valjean to eat some ice cream and be happy? Now that and freaks so, me out a lot more. So I'm tempted to say no, but I think reason that encourage me to say yes. Yes, Bridger should bring back Jean Valjean because Bridger wants Jean Valjean to have ice cream. You're right. Your argument is fully generalizable to fictional people who also don't exist, much like dead people don't exist. Yes. Um, and I want to just subtly point this out. I'm not the only person asking that question. Mycroft and the Major are talking about the exact same moral issues in pretty much the exact same way without that was talked about with Bridger and Carlyle in this chapter, when they talk about, you know, they could bring back everybody with uh, a, a bunch of mannequins and some period costumes and a miracle. Which, by the way, that line is fantastic. Um, is. Well, at least they're talking about whether it would be okay for Bridger to go and do it. They're considering the possibility. I don't think it's actually posed to the audience as a serious dilemma yes. yet. I think they're both pretty clearly on the side that he shouldn't. Well, should- but yeah, that's a, that's a question that they're kind of dealing with here, because they're also trying to do the same psychological double step that Carlyle was doing earlier, which is 
make sure that Bridger doesn't feel like they have a moral obligation to do so um, and on everyone else's behalf because then they could be psychologically damaged in the way that they would have to bring back every single person who ever died or every single person they ever read about in a book that they like. Because putting all of that on a 13-year-old kid is a problem. Uh, especially if you want the... Especially if, the, especially if they're, you know, a, a kid who cries when the bad guy dies. Especially if the kid can uh, be responsible for saving humanity. Like, even if you do want Bridget to bring a life on Zephyr lived, uh, which I'm fond of the idea, I would not I would want Bridget to be psychologically healthy. Yeah. So there's this then question of... Is it okay to, to give arguments to this child that you don't necessarily 100% believe because you don't want to hurt them, and, and if they are hurt and they're psychologically damaged, they will be a less good person later? Is it okay to be deceptive or duplicitous or only present certain arguments and not others in that regard? Is it okay to lie to children? I hate lying to children. For sure. It's definitely okay to lie to children. I think it's probably... Children are dumb. They don't figure it out. I I think people... I don't think it's okay to lie to children. Uh, I think I might... That's not true. I think I don't like lying to children in an aesthetic sense. And I think it's not practical in many cases. I think because Bridger is just so important, you're going to have to lie to, lie to Bridger. But you know, to a, um, another child, I, it would not be, I don't think it would be justifiable. What was that, Liam? Wow, I, I disagree with you about that. I think that Bridger uh, deserves a shot at understanding the world that Bridger lives in and the idea that you're going to be able to protect him from reality by making sure he never accidentally thinks about it is uh, like borderline insulting to the person. No, I'm not. I mean, they're already working hard to protect him from reality. They're keeping him in a cave. I know. Oh, that's um, a, damn it. The that's, cave. A, that's a Plato reference, isn't Probably. it? God damn it. <sighs> oh, that had gone right over my head. Um, Probably keeping him physically in a cave is an okay idea. I'm less deeply emotionally concerned with whether or not they let him be assaulted by randoms on the street than I am with whether or not they are brainwashing him into whatever way of thinking they think is appropriate. Carlisle being around, so, probably a good start. And that's terrible news because Carlisle is a senseier and I don't like them for much of anything. So the fact that this is so, a step up from what he has been dealing with, it's not good news at all. So here's another question. Uh, you mentioned brainwashing a child. Um, how do you raise a child without brainwashing them? I don't know. I think, engaging with them. I think okay. there are things I can look at and say that's definitely doing more of it. I, but I don't know if I can give you a parenting plan to make sure that you don't accidentally do any of it. Well, I, I'm not talking about in terms of accidentally. I'm talking in terms of, is there a meaningful difference between raising a child and buying them books that you think they'll like or that are important for some moral reason, or taking them to the museum where they get to see the, the things on display and the people who used to live, or any of these things, that's going to affect their development, that's going to influence the person that they become yeah no i think there is a moral a moral line in the sand that i want to draw there and it's buying them books that you think they'll enjoy 
even for reasons that you think to learn important moral lessons from them. Sure. When you start deliberately obscuring information because you think it will lead them to draw conclusions that you don't like, nah, that's no good. I mean, I agree that... So there's an active... So it's an active versus... Ne- it's a positive versus a negative distinction. Yeah, I think I, I agree that the engaging with a child honestly, and which may think you, lead you to think you need to teach them, but like getting them honestly, I think is the, the crucial thing, like to be authentic with them, rather than trying to... to control is just a different moral act than trying to control their development by concealing information and uh, making them think in certain ways. So I do think it's, it's, it's morally worse to do that, to be clear. You shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. I would um, even go so far as to say that no human child, happen to no human child in, in the standard world, but Bridger, because Bridger has this potential to be so... It, Powerful, uh, in a negative and positive sense, I think you have a duty to do this to Bridger. Uh, well, where oh, are you? Uh, a utilitarian? We're breaking out the deontology today. <laughs> what happened to your utilitarianism? That's, I was going to All ask. All of a sudden, it's the, inconvenient. It, we turn to Emmanuel. <laughs> is the is the fact that have we turned Bridger into a utility monster by virtue of how important he is? Or, or some similar equivalent, because Bridger's existence is so, and, and moral development, is so dramatically out of proportion with any old kid, because the fate of humanity is at stake. Have we made him into a utility monster, or equivalent? I mean, I think there's a risk there, but I think there's a difference, there's a difference between a utility monster and Bridger, and that Bridger's ultimate utility comes from the fact that Bridger will cause utility for everyone else. Like, Bridger will make solve world hunger will make world peace will all these things um that's where i that's where i disagree with you i don't think bridger has an obligation to make the world so much better for everyone else if bridger would like to start raising the dead one day sure but i think it is a a true statement to say that bridger is not obligated to go and raise the dead and raising him as though he is, is essentially turning him into a slave without agency, like a servicer who has done nothing wrong. So this idea that we need to get a hold of him and make sure that one day he'll save the world, that that, that reads as hugely manipulative to me. I agree it's hugely manipulative. I think it's worth it. Uh, Don't do it. Quit it. I think it's worth Stop it. Stop being manipulative. <laughs> so... Uh, this is going to tie into another point that was, this is not going to be the last time we talk about it, I'm sure, because Bridger will continue to be a character. Uh, a lot well, of the Bridger As far stuff, as I know. <laughs> as far as the, the thematic questions involved here, the questions of raising Bridger are, I think, mostly these kinds of questions about how, what's the right way to raise a kid? What is the ethical thing to do when A, you care about this child as a person, and B, it is really important that this child feel that they are important as a person so that they can live a life that makes the world better. I mean, because that's not unique to Bridger, that's unique to that's the entire human experience of child raising. You want to what extent should you be focused on making them a person who does 
good things in the world, who has the capacity to do good things in the world, or who has, or, you know, maybe not the world, but some more localized construction versus their own personal happiness and fulfillment. And when those things diverge, what do you do? I am much more comfortable uh, with taking a Liam's approach with normal children. Like, I think engaging, even if you are concerned about making a, having a child, being part of some moral values so and so forth, that dealing with them honestly probably to be the best bet. And honestly, I think with Bridget, the, the best scenario, you're probably going to tell, you, you shouldn't well, construct literally everything in Bridget's life to be a lie. Uh, I think it would be not effective and therefore bad. Uh, and it, it, in, in children, again, it's again not effective to know, try to. It's more effective even if you're trying to do uh, moral teaching to try to engage honestly with them. And this may result in your child having different moral beliefs than you, uh, or result in them being, yeah, different moral beliefs than you, and then doing different things. But that's not. The child isn't that important, so it's fine. Ah, <laughs> uh, I think telling parents it's okay to mess up your child because they don't matter that much is, uh... <laughs> it's, it's... Actually, I'm fine with that. Um, that's the official <laughs> position of this podcast. Your child doesn't matter that much. I would like to reiterate, I'm a podcast guest. I am not an official member. Like, if you ac- accidentally raised your kid to... I don't know. I'm trying to think of a thing that's bad, but it's going to, like, be so bad. To... Chew with their mouth open. Be too... Af- too... Uh, to be too risk-taking. Then to be too like the lightning. Uh, to, to, to take too many risks. You know, in, a, in the optimal sense. Keeps jumping out of planes, just won't stop copying that lightning. <laughs> <laughs> Usually, it's not so bad, right? If it's not very extreme risky behavior, like, you know, that your your kid drives too fast or likes skydiving. It's sort of like, a, okay, if Bridger takes too many risks, that's, that's bad. In a way. Yeah. It is bad. But Bridger is still a person, and Bridger still gets all the rights that everyone else gets to have. Just because he's convenient for you doesn't mean that you get to, like, own Bridger and his entire being. that uh, I don't care for that as an attitude. Hmm. I don't... Why don't you skip a step and lock Bridger up in a cell so that he can more efficiently make your life better that seems, yeah, by bringing back the dead, the thing you care about? Not effective to the things I want to do. I bet it would be very effective. I think it would not be. All this Bridger having fun is time he isn't raising the dead. Well... Uh, have either of you read Worm? Yes. Uh, I have almost finished it. I've tried okay. it twice, um, and I stopped at the same place both times. Panacea's introduction, uh, she talks about the exact same problem with relatively limited healing powers compared to uh, Bridger's god-like powers that are completely without understanding or explanation. Uh like, just the ability to, every time I go to the movies or have to wait in line at the bank, is a moment that I could be walking through a pediatric cancer ward and saving every life there. It messes a person up, even if literally no one expects it of you, and nobody's asking you. 
the the internal I could do this and I'm not doing it is at least in the perspective of Wildbow enough to seriously mess somebody yeah. up. And I should um, be clear that the deception I'm advocating is that I don't want Bridget to think that Bridger has a moral duty to bring back the dead, even though I think want he does. Him- but you are willing to construct his entire life so as to convince him that he should anyway. My question is, if this is a utilitarian perspective that you are taking, then by sitting there and saying, well, yeah, but we shouldn't, no, chain him to the floor and start passing representations of healing bottles over him 24 hours a day. This middling situation is not one that I can wrap my head around. Well, it's because I don't, we if don't. Bridger is so important that he doesn't get to have rights, then Bridger should not be sitting around reading Les Mis. If Bridger gets to have rights, then Bridger gets to do things you don't think are right. People with no rights are made to read Les Mis. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that um, I don't know that the best thing to do is to bring up the dead right now. I'm uncertain. And if it turns out not to be, I'm not the best person in the best place to deal with the problems. Bridger is. So I think long term, it is... But are you in the position to make the decision? Like, Bridger might be the person best able to do the action, but there's nothing saying that that Bridger is only allowed to do the things that they decide to do. If somebody else, if Bridger were to say, I'm going to do everything that Mycroft tells me to do, and Mycroft says, you do this, you do this, you do this. Is that different? Because Bridger is outsourcing the decision-making, and therefore it's somebody else's opinion. Well, if it was, like, uh, constantly that, then that would be, like, a way to do it. But I just think that, that's like, Bridger can try to escape. Or Bridger can... I mean, Bridger can easily try to escape, right? Uh, it's Bridger. <laughs> I can't mm. chain Bridger. Part of it is I literally can't chain Bridger to a, a chain, but like, part of it is that. Do you think you would, if you could? No. Let's I... say I've I've made Bridger animate a chain that will contain Bridger permanently. I've I've waved my, oh my author's God, God wand. Oh my God! God made a taco so big he can't eat it. <laughs> exactly, and I've solved this problem. You can now chain Bridger down in a dungeon and export his abilities in the most utilitarian, pleasing way possible. Do it? And if not, why not? I think the harm of delay is not so bad and is less than the harm to Bridger. But... You think that the harm to Bridger is more than the harm to all of the people Bridger could possibly be helping with you having him change to a magical this, this is about the, the, the dead solution people. solving. Uh, then you don't think that Bridger can do stuff. Well, well dead people, uh, anti-cancer potions, anything you care to animate via Bridger. Yeah, if it's everything, you can that, now do it. Everything. You torture the child, you get the stuff. If it's everything. Perfect. Then yeah, I'd have to. Then why aren't, why aren't you now? What? How can you possibly... How can you possibly be suggesting that the gains to Bridger personally are worth it? He's one child. I think we're talking about death. So if it's everything, all this Bridger could do. Um, I think it's... Is that true? I think it's probably true now. Like, if Bridger was around now, I would say yes. I would take the deal immediately. I just don't know what the world of Terry is right. Maybe it's fine if I wait. 
20, 30 years. So you think that one child having an okay childhood is a good trade for 20 or 30 more years of people dying? I can bring them back. Because that's what I'm hearing. I can bring them back. And that sounds ridiculous. I can bring them back. <laughs> I'm skeptical of your math on this one. If we're already saying that Bridger having rights isn't an issue, Bridger's happiness is negligible compared to anything Bridger can do. Or ne- Every or day that Bridger isn't saving matters. people is an extra day worth of happiness you're trading. I don't get or it. Bridger's happiness matters to the exact extent necessary for Bridger to do the maximum amount of good. Like if there's some diminishing returns point where making this... Uh, Bridger more busy results in fewer good things happening. You know, but but Bridger's happiness becomes instrumental, not... Yeah, no, I agree that Bridger's happiness is primarily instrumental. I don't think you're reasoning... At, I think that's a convenient, easy-to-defend explanation for answers that don't really make sense from its perspective. Like, to be clear, this is a, the, my entire sanity about this is because I don't know the world. I, we haven't talked about what the world of Shanghai is like in terms of suffering. If it, Bridger was around right now, in the world currently, then yes, I would chain, chain Bridger. I'd take the deal. Uh, I think we've definitely got enough information. I, I think we certainly talked about this topic a good deal. Okay, um, fine. We'll move uh, on to I another mean, one and come back yes. to yelling about ethics later. <laughs> well, I think... But don't think I this won't. This particular ethical question, you know, we can talk about this very specific case where the where the values are bro- blown all out of proportion, but the basic question, how should you raise a child and see that they're instructed morally and for their own happiness is another place where Lemus and Tara Ignor uh, connect. Because the way that Jean Valjean raises Cosette and, you know, he doesn't think he'd do a particularly good job in a lot of important respects, and there's this whole thing about getting her an education at a convent... Uh, to make sure that she's got the right values for a proper lady. There's a lot of layers of connection you can make between two works that are in some sense uh, related in this in this sort of way. Um, and I don't think there are easy answers when it comes to how should you raise a child, uh, whether, whether they be super-powered or just a little orphan kid. Um, what are you talking about? There's all kinds of easy answers. Well, done. <laughs> <laughs> no, I prefer my children rare. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, Mycroft is not the only character who's got an interesting parallel in Lemos. Um There's a character called Javert, uh, Inspector Javert, who is the police officer who is constantly running into Jean Valjean over the years and pursuing him and incapable of believing that he's really become a good man and should be just be left alone. Uh, there are, in fact, two good parallels to Javert um, in the text that we've encountered. Uh, one of these is Martin, uh, who we just got a lot of information about and a little bit of insight into the way he thinks. Uh, Javert and Martin are both very trusting. They are both agents of the law who trust in that law very completely. Uh, they're very thorough and devoted to rooting out deception and uh, acting upon that. There's this kind of sense of a, a statue or a pillar about them where they are this 
idealized, immovable object of a, of a person um, and cannot really be dissuaded in a certain respect. Uh, and Martin is certainly very, very dedicated to his, to his ideals and the, and the things that he is serving. Um, and like, do you think you could bribe Martin? I, I don't think you can do anything of the sort. The other is Dominic, uh, who is a very different character. Um, but he is also an exceptionally dedicated individual. He is also, you know, actually French. Uh, he's from the uh, 18th century uh, cosplay instead of the 19th, but, you know, subtle distinctions are permitted. Uh, he's vicious. He's very frequently compared to a dog. Uh, almost every description of Javert uh, includes some passage about how he is like a dog in some respect. Uh, and Dominic has a number of, of descriptions like a dog, you know, is he smelling this object to figure out and collect information and whatnot? Um, he is kind of cruel. The, the way he laughs for both characters is terrifying. Um, in in uh, Les Miserables, uh, Javert's laugh is described as uh, in the same way that Javert has uh, all of the evil of virtue uh, he also, when he laughs, brings all the terror of joy. Uh, and when we talk about uh, the, the, the smug laugh of Dominic, like John Calvin knowing who is damned, or, or the inoability of who is damned and whatnot, they're, they're very similar in terms of description and uh, character in these ways. So you can think of, okay, if... How is Mycroft's story like Valjean's? How can I compare them? How can I contrast them? When you split Javert in half and divide him into two different investigators with very different personalities, but who are all, both still fundamentally riffs on the same other character, uh, what, what does that tell you about who are the people you should be sympathizing with, who you should be looking to... Um, what you what you should expect from them later on, because um, sometimes if you do this kind of analysis, you might go, oh, I wonder if there will be a part that parallels this event in that character's life. Who knows? Um, we shall find out. Uh, those are kind of the most obvious points of comparison between the two books, but there's some other ones as well. Um, Les Mis is a book about how society affects people and affects how their world is sh shaped and the kind of people that they become. Uh, the title itself, uh, Les Miserables, The Wretched, uh, The Wretches, depending on how you want to interpret it. It's about... Uh, let, let me jump in briefly and then continue sure. with what you were saying. It sounds like you're getting into discussing thematic elements of both works. I'm not yes. going to stop you. But do think in your head before you I have, say I have one. been thinking for weeks. <laughs> Great. Okay. So you've done your homework yes. on not cool. Go on then. I trust yes. you. Um, so here's a really obvious point of comparison. Um, there's a lot of very, very obvious attention in Les Mis to how one rather obvious point of comparison in terms of themes is the way that uh, the way that the law is set up affects people in very important ways. Um, in Les Mis, it's, uh, the title itself can be translated as The Wretched or The Wretches. 
in many ways, it's about people living at the outskirts of society, people who have to uh, break the law in order to survive. Um, Jean Valjean's initial crime is stealing a loaf of bread. Uh, another character turns to prostitution in order to support her daughter. Uh, those And a lot of people kind of live outside of the protection of the law. Here we have, in Terra Ignota, a world in which people get to choose the laws that they live under, whether that be in a hive, uh, you know, I decide to be a mason, I decide to be a humanist, or whether that be uh, kind of living outside the protection of some of those laws, choosing to be a black law or something kind of in the middle, like picking to be a gray law, um, and seeing how that affects, A, the kind of people who get to choose what law they go under um, is interesting because most people don't get a choice in our world, of course. Uh, the level of choice you have in what laws are made is mostly a matter of how much can you convince your legislator to change things uh, versus people who can decide, I don't feel like I want to live in a society that has capital punishment. I'm not going to be a Mason. I'm going to be something else. And then what somebody who chooses to be someone who lives under the authority of someone who has capital punishment, what that does to them. Um, but it's not just law. Um, it's also questions of, of technology, uh, questions of economics. You know, this entire plot of the 710 list, what are we trying to prevent? We're trying to prevent a global recession um, because apparently that would be a big deal in this world. Um, obviously, the economic reality of a bunch of people living at the edge of starvation is also a big deal and what that does to a person is something that is maybe the most uh celebrated critical part of Les Miserables even things like what the technology and infrastructure are like I said before that there's an entire hundred pages or so devoted to the Parisian sewer system compare that to you know Mycroft's talking about Mukta the the cars how they work how the fact that you can now travel 20 minutes to the other end of the world means that families are different, means that nations as a concept are completely different, means that work is different, means that leisure is different. The world is basic, is in some sense made by these cars in the same way that Paris is in some way made by its streets, its sewer systems, and uh, things of that nature. Um, it's a very interesting set of uh, questions, and if you think about really any socially focused science fiction, you're going to be thinking about how does technology influence society in that kind of way. There's also all the religious stuff. Les Mis is a book that is in many ways about God, uh, singular, capital, uh, who's got a very complex relationship with the world that's not necessarily super in-depth, but it's very much there's a god and he's doing something, at least from the perspective of our narrator, who is constantly telling us that this is the case. Um, and that has some thematic parallels between some of the questions that at least a few characters are thinking about here. There is more. As mentioned before, we decided to be careful of what the thematic questions are. And some of the most interesting ones are ones that we therefore cannot talk about. It turns out Les Mis is a gigantic book, and therefore can we can talk all day about its themes. So, uh, well, here's what perhaps we can do: when we get to the end of book one, mm -hmm. maybe we can have you back on to talk about 
the overall thematic similarities between the two once I can actually talk about the entire book. There is an extent to which we... That is an, that is an idea. Oh, that still uh, wouldn't work? Okay. Book what... <laughs> I, I don't know what's coming, would not, so I don't know when the natural breakpoints are. I understand there is there is not necessarily one point at which it suddenly becomes okay to discuss everything thematically similar. There are points where it becomes more okay to talk about particular points. Fair enough. And uh, the last point of similarity is how history relates to the world around you. Uh, as I mentioned before, both Mycroft and Victor Hugo are constantly going off about here's this important thing that happened long ago, here's this important thing that happened, you know, uh, relatively recently. Um, in Les Mis, Napoleon, who is dead by the time of the major points of the story, or at least in exile for the entire point of the story, casts an extremely long shadow over the entire proceeding. The French Revolution casts a very long shadow of the entire proceedings. The future in which Napoleon III takes power is casting a shadow kind of backwards in time uh, in a certain respect. And when Mycroft is talking about how ours is a world made in the 18th century, or um, this is how the construction of this city is this particular person's fault, there's that kind of same sense that the past is not just influencing the present, but is in some way of a kind with it. It's like it's like they're in there's a, there's a phrase that a that a literature professor um, Harold Bloom uses when he talks about the canon, which is like the the works are in conversation with each other. It's like the past is going back and forth with the present and the future, uh, talking as if there is some essential continuity and essential importance of them all being kind of connected. If that sounds a little wishy-washy, uh, that's probably because it is. If it sounds profound, that's also kind of because it is. Um, it's part of the reason why I like these books so much. And that's what I had to say about Les Mis that I can talk about today. Okay. Um, there were a couple other things we get near the end of this chapter, and then I think we can wrap it up. We find out uh, that Mycroft's plan, hear me out, listeners, is to bring the secret child who no one can know about to the one guy who everyone knows can't keep a secret. Well, I think... The actual plan is that. I think that's, like, the end game. Like, when Bridger is ready to come out to the world. How do we bring Bridger? No, but he says this is his plan now. The major goes, where are we taking him? And he goes, I do know everyone. Let's bring him to Jed Mason. No, I think that's like, where are we going to take him <sighs> at the end? Not like when we're hiding from Dominic. Like when, when are we going to take, where are we going to take him when we have to introduce some people to... Yeah. When that time comes, it will be J.E.D. Yeah. Mason. You don't what think that time, time is entail... when they escape? No, I think that time... This, now that they're escaping from Dominic, that time is like... The time and have to, but it's going to have effects. But it's going to have to be introduced to people, and that requires telling, telling someone at first. Why is he talking about that now instead of where they're going to hide from Dominic in an hour and a half? <laughs> because someone asked, I believe. <laughs> oh, Mycroft, why? <laughs> 
Um, I would also like to point out the most strange thing about that entire exchange, which is that we know from earlier in the book that Dominic is part of J.D.D. Mason's investigation, working under him the same way that Martin is. So he's going to give Bridger to J.E.D.D. Mason to save him from Dominic, who would bring him to J.E.D.D. Mason. This is why I don't like Minecraft. It's this kind of stuff. Well, I think there might be, there's an implication that might be something in between the state, which is not going to be great for Bridger or the world. He also implies in this section that he he thanks the creators of the Canner device, which he calls the Gaiji's device. Does, does he still have it? Has he actually no. been doing a really good job of keeping secrets this entire time? He never had it. Uh, as he explained to Donna A in chapter four or whatever, uh, he never That's had what it. I thought. Why he, is he thanking the creators of it now? Used, because What's everyone thinks he had it. And he used that to... The real... He used yeah. that to hide how he actually just hides in the tracking system. Okay. He doesn't actually secretly have yeah. it, though. This isn't Correct. the reveal that, he like... He has something else that we don't know. Okay. Um, you talk I about- really, I thought for a, a solid sentence that miraculously Mycroft had actually been doing a really good job and he had hid it from even us in his narration, but he secretly still has it and he was lying to everyone. No, that's more in character, I admit. Well, um, I think it's also uh, to note that he, at no point has someone asked, uh, has, has, has someone got out of Mycroft? how he actually hides from the track system. Oh, but you almost you almost tipped it there, didn't you? You almost said at no point has anyone asked, which is also a true <laughs> statement. And I think really related to how no one has gotten it out of him. In fact, my last note... You can be remarkably note, effective at just not being questioned about the right subjects. <laughs> Thisby comes in at the end and for some reason seems surprised that he actually knew Jed Mason. He knows everyone. Um, and then suggests that he's hidden this from her. And the thing I wrote down at the end of this chapter was, Thisby must never have tried the high-level technique of asking Mycroft anything even vaguely related to what she wanted to know. Well, part of... It's the only plausible explanation Part of this is that you don't actually know all of the questions you want answers to, right? She apparently actively suspected that he was friends with Jed Mason, which I didn't know was a secret. I've thought they were friends since chapter two. I guess I just assumed that. But she says that every time someone talks about him, he looks down his shoes and gets all guilty looking like he knows them. And that like if she's that suspicious, she should have asked. Well, he also she also says he, she, he wouldn't admit it. So I think he may have like just talked her out of something. Maybe. Or talked have, around it or something. Yeah. Have we ever heard Mycroft talk around anything except for to us? Yes. Only heard Mycroft. Yes. Uh, wait. He has um, done it several times. He has uh, talked about Carlisle to Donna A without saying specifics um, to reveal that he knows that her kid is alive and reasonably well. Um, Except she left he, that count. I think he said enough specifics is the thing. It's fair. Uh, he said where the senseiur had recently been assigned to the ruler of an entire hive. They can figure it out from there. Okay. Um, he's talked uh, 
you certainly avoided certain subjects uh, with other people. For example, has Mycroft told anyone what he's done? I mean, a lot of people know. He hasn't told us what he's done. And he also knows that's a question we have. Yeah. He also knows that, yes. Luckily for him, we the readers can't <laughs> ask him. Maybe I am too you can hard. Totally on ask. Minecraft. You just won't answer. I just, yeah, it hasn't worked. I keep yelling at my phone and <laughs> nothing. Anyway, that he is friends with Jed Mason is the last reveal of the chapter. Thisbe runs in with Carlisle. And that's it. That's where we end for the week. Lightning. Oh, we're ending the episode this early. I didn't get to talk about my favorite chapter in all of Les Mis. So early on, before we even meet Jean Valjean, we meet this bishop, uh, Monsieur Marielle. Uh, and he has is the nicest bishop in the world. And there's an entire chapter devoted to his expenses for the year and his budget. Uh, and we get to see how much money he's donating to the poor, how much money he's using to support him and his household, how much money he's using to support on various other projects. Like I think he's doing something for a hospital. Uh, but just by seeing this look into the daily life and the, and the monetary life of this one wealthy person, but he's got a very strong uh, sense that he's supposed to be doing good in the world and supposed to be helping other people.